0: The best, 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 best. best. of Cresta in the afternoon countdown <laughs> number 32.
1: And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. As I mentioned in the beginning, the intro to today's program. Uh, today's the anniversary of the state of Israel's admission to the United Nations, May 11, 1949. And uh, Christians uh, have varying attitudes towards the state of Israel. Uh, and, of course, those who take uh, biblical revelation seriously you have to come to grips with the promises that are made to ancient Israel— you take a look at Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 15, and it looks as though there's an unconditional gift of the land. And at the same time, uh, later on, there are conditions stipulated by which life in the land uh, might be lost. So exactly what is the relationship of the covenant people of Israel? to the gift of the land in the first place. And it gets even more complicated when we come to the New Testament, because here we have Jesus who fulfills within himself all the promises uh, of the Old Covenant. Now, What does that mean for a Catholic's attitude towards Israel? Well, we're trying to develop that uh, by conversation with Dr. André Villeneuve. He's associate professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He received his doctorate from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013 and uh, wrote his dissertation on the topic of nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and in ancient Jewish writings. His main areas of interest include the study of sacred scripture, the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, he leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and he focuses on fostering the reconciliation of Israel and the Church through his uh, organization, Catholics for Israel, and you can learn more at catholicsforisrael.com. Andre, good to have you with me. Thanks.
0: Hello, Al. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, we now have the; t- it's a good chance for us to talk about the state of Israel and uh, its relationship to biblical Israel. Uh, let me start with a, a comparative question. Uh, it's clear that evangelical, fundamentalist, and Pentecostal Christians have spent a lot of time uh, looking at the state of the the state of Israel. As a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, in the Catholic Church, you don't see that as much. What's the difference here?
0: Right. So obviously, we have more prudence on the the Catholic side because of the the when the magisterium says something, it tends to be definitive and and fairly binding. And so we have a different dynamic to begin with between evangelical churches, where you have some kind of certain churches, you have certain movements, loose movements that are loosely tied together. Yeah. And, of course, they come from the approach of Sola Scriptura, and so they read the uh, the Scriptures uh, without being encumbered with uh, 2,000 years of Christian tradition, yeah. which in many ways it's a, it's a disadvantage, as we know as Catholics, but it can also, in some ways, be an advantage because... Um, because they're less encumbered, and they really see what scriptures say, yeah. and uh, they don't need to to, and to disentangle themselves from uh, theological traditions, some of which, of course, is authoritative, that we believe, but not all of it. Right. Sometimes we have certain ways of thinking in the Catholic Church that are not necessarily magisterial, but they're just deeply anchored in in the way we've thought for, for centuries. Right. And so, in that sense, they have more flexibility.
1: No, that's good. Uh, that's very good. Now, within within the Catholic Church, is there time being spent uh, these days on mm-hmm. the nature, uh, from a theological point of view, uh, the nature of the relationship between Israel and the land and yeah. the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how these things interface? Sure.
0: There's absolutely time being spent. It tends to be more at the higher level, the official uh, dialogue between Jews and Christians, and so you have the Commission for Religious uh, uh, Relations with the Jews at the Vatican. Um, unfortunately, I would say there's relatively little thought that's being given to the issue on the parochial level, you know, the level of the parish, of the, of the average Catholic. Um, I think there tends to be very little about that, perhaps because we have other problems to worry about uh, in sure, nowadays. Sure. You know, there's so many issues in the church um but yeah it's a bit disappointing because obviously when we read the scriptures you cannot avoid the reality of israel right. and that is not just the old testament of course in the old testament uh, israel is the people of god but israel is still the people of god in the new testament right. and that was never revoked never abolished as paul says very clearly in uh, especially in romans 9 9 to
1: 11. now when we look at the, the land, then, which is given to mm-hmm. Israel, uh, and it looks as though it, in some way it's an unconditional gift, uh, even though yeah. there are stipulations about, uh, yeah. you know, judgment and uh, exile, and well, so it's almost as though there's a, a, uh, a dialectic between a theology of the land and a theology of the diaspora that goes on here. Yeah. Um
0: yeah, so it's it's the most repeated prophecy, I would argue, in the, the old testament. On Catholics for Israel, I have a couple of articles that just list all the all the every single time where there's some kind of promise of a land beginning with, with Abraham. And this promise continues until after the Babylonian exile. So as we know <laughs> the Jews were sent off to, to Babylonia in five eighty seven, five eighty six BC for for about seven years and they returned. But even after their return, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, you still see prophets like like Zechariah that continue to to prophesy the return of the Jewish people to the land. And it's true that the New Testament is largely silent about the land of Israel itself. But when the New Testament is silent about something, we assume continuity. We don't assume abrogation or right. a break of what was previous. That's right.
1: right? Yeah.
0: And so and and there are hints for example Jesus in the gospel of Luke who says uh, Jerusalem will be trampled by the gentiles until the time of the gentiles is fulfilled mm-hmm. which seems to to presuppose that Jerusalem will be in the hands of the Gentiles for a certain time, but there will come an end to that when the right. Jews will regain sovereignty over Jerusalem and holy Land
1: yeah, yeah no, that's great, yeah I'm looking here at uh at your list uh it comes to about twenty pages of eight, eight and a half yeah. by 11, 20 pages of nothing but promises uh regarding yeah. the land and it's 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 stunning uh the yes. number of uh, really citations of <laughs> mm-hmm. um. You know, and I, and also it is it is interesting. I mean, when the, at the time of the incarnation, uh, while uh, Israel is in the land, there at the same time the land is occupied uh, to some mm-hmm. degree by the Roman Empire, and so there's always these strange relationships that grow up uh, yeah. between Israel and dominating uh, nations uh, around right. them or over them. Right. Uh, when, when you look at those passages in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and you know that in Christ these uh, promises are fulfilled, what can this mean relative to the land?
0: Yes. Well, first I would start by... Looking, I think one of the, the most important prophecies is what we see in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Okay. And it's also one of the longest because it's, it's quite, you know, Ezekiel gives quite a bit of detail. Sometimes these prophecies are very short, so they're just one verse or something. But here we have two full chapters. And one thing that is key about these two chapters, Ezekiel 36 and 37, is that you have a two uh, a, a tiered uh, restoration of, of Israel. Uh, the first thing to note is that there there are no conditions involved. So you're absolutely right that the, the the possession of the land in many cases it's conditional, right? It depends on Israel's faithfulness uh, to the covenants, to the commandments, to the Torah, uh, and under pain of exile. If you don't follow the commandments, then you will be sent out in exile. And as we right. you know, that happened already uh, twice, uh, and most notably under the Babylonians and the Romans but the restoration if you read Ezekiel 37 uh and 36 you see God speaking to the prophet saying I will return you to the land without any kind of condition of of conversion or of transformation or repentance at first at least and then in the second uh, stage you see then the prophet who says and then I will pour out my spirit upon you I'll sprinkle clean water upon you I'll give you a new heart Heart of flesh, not like a heart of stone, you will be my people, and I will be your God. And so if you look at the sequence, it's quite remarkable, because it's not Israel, repents, and if you do, I will return you to the land, Right. but it's I will return you to the land in my sovereign action intervention, and when I do that, I will pour out my Spirit upon you, and then I will turn you to me. And that is repeated, the same message repeated in Ezekiel 37, which is the famous value of the dry bones. Um, and so there you see the, the the skeletons in this valley, a first prophetic oracle, the skeletons are covered with flesh and mm-hmm. things, so they become essentially corpses, and then a second oracle, and they come back to life, and then there's no room for really a lot of speculation, because Ezekiel gives the interpretation right away, and he says, those dry bones are the house of Israel, I will return you back to the land, so that would be the the skeletons turning into corpses, right? So the the, the physical restoration. Yeah. And when I return to the land, I will give you my spirit, and that's when you will come. So physical restoration followed by a spiritual restoration. Right,
1: right. And I, it's also important to recognize that, at least in Ezekiel 39, he actually says, I will be jealous for my holy name, uh, implying yes. a connection between... Um, uh the the glory due to God yes. and Israel's yeah. possession of the land right so I mean it, it, so this there's reason to believe that uh, Israel's possession of the land can function as a way of um, evidence of the authenticity of the tradition I guess is what I'm trying to say
0: right and and often you hear this argument Against a kind of anti-Zionist argument to say, based precisely on that, saying, well, the early Zionist movement of the 19th and early 20th century was largely secular. That's right, yeah. Yeah. It was not motivated by any kind of Jewish uh, religious, hey, you know, God promised us this land in the prophecies, so we have to go back. It was more like a survival, uh, especially with the the rise of of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very... um, uh, I guess utilitarian or pragmatic in the sense that yes, we have a historical and cultural co- connection to the land of Israel, so we should return. And often this is the, this critique, uh, but in fact, that very fact is in, in accordance with the, what the prophecies say, um, and it also it's also in conformity with what you see in Scripture through both Old and New Testament that, that that the people of Israel have never been. You know, a messianic kingdom as such. It's always been this intertwining of political, messy uh, meanderings of the the nation, you know, with their sins and all, and God's intervention in the midst of this very secular kingdom, even at the time, you know, of Joshua and the judges and the kings.
1: Hold it there, Andrew. We'll come back and continue the conversation about Israel and the land. The best. Best, best,
0: best Best. Best. Best.
1: of Cresta in the Afternoon, Countdown.
0: Number
1: 32. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today marks the anniversary of Israel's admission to the United Nations, May 11th of 1949. And we're using it as the occasion uh, to discuss the relationship between uh, Israel Biblical Israel, the land, the new covenant, and what is the relationship between the Church and Israel? Is the Church the, quote, new Israel, and what is meant by that when uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9 that you, again writing to the baptized, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is that is he replacing ancient Israel with a new Israel called the Church? With me is Dr. Andre Villeneuve. He's a associate professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Seminary. We're going over this. He also uh, has great material uh, at catholicsforisrael.com. So, Andre, what about this idea of the church as "quote New Israel"? What what is what is meant by that? Uh, what's the New Testament um, references for such a, an attitude?
0: Right, that's a great question because uh, that really that question has been at the foundation of the denial of any kind of role for Israel in salvation history after yeah. Christ because there has been uh, the development of what we know now as replacement theology or supersessionism, mm-hmm. which uh, is not found in the New Testament, but that began to be developed in, uh, by the Church Fathers and became tacitly accepted in much of Church history, yeah. though it never became official Catholic doctrine or, or dogma. In fact, that was repudiated at the Second Vatican Council, by, especially by the Declaration of Nostra Aetate saying that explicitly that God's covenant with the Jewish people, with Israel, is irrevocable, coming yeah. from Romans 11. Yep. So the big question is, what is the relationship? Because there is uh, the term New Israel to—applying the term New Israel to the Church is, in many ways, legitimate. That, too, is is cited in the, the Vatican II documents. And so, for sure, the Church takes part in the promises of Israel, especially the spiritual aspect of Israel. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment as the Messiah of Israel. He's the fulfillment of all those uh, those prophecies that God made to Israel. And of course, the ultimate destiny or destination of the human person is not a physical land anywhere on earth, even the land of Israel, but it is heaven. Right. And so in many ways, the, the land of Israel or the, the people of Israel still point beyond themselves to, uh, to the heavenly reality. Now, what does that mean? And Paul really gives us a good part of the answer in Romans 11, because he has this analogy of the uh, the olive tree,
1: Yes. Okay.
0: which is really kind of a warning to the Gentiles, because he's saying some natural branches were cut off from the olive tree, so these they, they would be the, the Jews who did not believe in Christ, and you, the Gentiles, you, these wild olive branches, were grafted into the tree. But then he <laughs> said, be careful, do not become proud or arrogant, because you don't support the roots, but the roots support you. Yeah. Because God can also cut you off, and if He cuts you off, He is also able to regraft in the original natural branches.
1: Yes. Yes. And
0: so, the short answer to your question is that, in a certain sense, the church is is the new Israel. But we have to be cautious in using that expression because it has so often been used to in a in a way of replacing or superseding Israel.
1: Mm-hmm. Whereas
0: we we should really have a more more humble approach to say we are we are partakers in these promises. We we inherit them in a certain way, but we don't steal them, you know? <laughs> we are grateful to our elder brothers in the faith for having a certain uh, participation in those original promises without, uh, without denying that God may still have a plan for his original people.
1: It is amazing, isn't it? I mean, the image of the olive tree. I mean, uh, the grafting in of the Gentiles— uh, it, it makes it clear that the primary entity is the tree prior to the grafting in of the gentiles yes. um, and yes. that's that that takes a, a real shifting of imagination i think for a lot right. of us uh right. christians um as we we so try to you know try to deal honestly with the the biblical texts here sure um and this, this thing of the
0: New Israel, the New Israel is never mentioned. That particular expression is never mentioned in the New Testament. And if you do a word study just of the word Israel, I think there's something like 75 or 77 times that Israel is mentioned or Israelites. And every single time it, it refers to the Jewish people. It just refers to, um, to the people of Israel as we know them from the Old Testament, except for a, like about two of them are ambiguous. For example, Paul says not, not all Israel is Israel, Right. and there's another one as well where he talks about the, the Jew, the true Jew. Um, but still, even if you have two that are ambiguous, that still leaves you something like 75 uh, instances where Israel just means Israel. It never means the
1: Church, you know? Yeah. Uh, let me raise a phrase that often is, is heard, and it's this, mm-hmm. that um, the Church's mission to Israel failed, in the New Testament, uh, and I think what's implied by that is, well, uh, Judaism went on, the Rabbinic Judaism went on, and so thereby the church's mission to convert Israel failed, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I wonder about that because certainly the the. <laughs> There are a lot of Jews in the first generation of Christians, for heaven's sakes. To what yep. degree? What degree did we fail? I don't know. Tell tell me what you make right. of that phrase. Well, yeah,
0: the, all the first Christians were Jews, and at first it was it was astonishing that any Gentiles would join the church, as we can read in the in the Acts of the Apostles, starting with Cornelius. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's it's really a, a tricky thing because it's true that. It says, even in, in Scripture, Jesus says, Jerusalem did not re- recognize the time of her visitation.
1: Right, right.
0: And for sure, we perceive a certain frustration on the part of St. Paul and the Apostles, who, in the Book of Acts, you know, they're traveling around, and they, they are largely rejected from, it appears, the, synagogues, the yeah. Jewish people in the synagogues, and right. for that reason, they turn to the Gentiles. But then Paul writes in Romans that somehow... Yes, every person has free will, and every person must give account to God for their acceptance or rejection of the gospel, but somehow God is able to turn that into a blessing for the world. So in God's providence, somehow he works with that yeah. uh, rejection of, of the gospel on the part of the Jewish people, which turns into a blessing for the Gentiles, and this is not without hope that the Jewish people will uh, one day also recognize the very Messiah of Israel— but not without um, or excuse me, without denying their own identity, because of course that has been the fear of the Jewish people since the first century was that to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and to accept him as Messiah would imply a betrayal of their own roots of their own covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, a denial and a repudiation of everything that has shaped and formed their identity, which was, of course, God-given, as we read in the Old Testament. Right. And so, it, as far as kind of theological development that we see today, you see that in the uh, Association of Hebrew Catholics, a greater effort to say, well, yes, you can believe in Yeshua, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and even be joined to His universal Catholic Church without denying or forsaking everything that has been dear to you, such as the celebration of the Sabbath, the Jewish feasts, um, you know, the Jewish liturgical Mm -hmm. year.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, does it help to think of the land as having been given to Israel, not so much as an ethnic project, but as a spiritual ethical project?
0: Well, it's both, because we are, as long as we're on this earth we are not spirits, nor are we angels. and so we understand this well as Catholics that if we don't have the matter of water, bread and wine and oil, we have no sacrament. Right, right? right So the spiritual is conveyed through the the physical and uh, you might see it that way as mm-hmm. the land of Israel as a, as a as a sacrament with a with a lowercase s not part uh, right. as of as the seven sacraments, but there's something sacramental about the physical land of Israel. Where God established his covenant with his people that 's where he revealed himself that 's where Jesus was uh, incarnate and conceived and born and lived and died and was resurrected and so God in this world acts and works and reveals himself through through matter and through 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 land and yeah. that 's what we continue to see even today
1: uh, to a practical question that comes up frequently uh when somebody like myself Stan, you know, says that uh, I have a special affection for the land of Israel, I see it uh, as a, in some way, I'm not entirely certain how, but in some way, as related to uh, the biblical picture, people say, well, wait a minute, what do you do with Israel's treatment of, well, the Palestinians? You know, right. or basically, how can you maintain a commitment to israel when leadership of israel is engaged in political activity that may be regarded as unethical how do you respond to that sure
0: yeah it's a classic question uh first obviously israel not being a messianic kingdom uh is not perfect and so uh, doing you know there's absolutely a place for legitimate criticism of uh the government of Israel or, or the the actions of the the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived 12 years in Israel, so I'm very aware that with I love Israel very much and I love my Jewish friends, but they're not perfect, very far from it. And I've seen <laughs> firsthand, you know, how uh, it's a society like any other society. In in many ways, it's not. It's very different from other societies. But as far as the human struggle with sin and human failure, it's quite normal, like every other other country. And so critique is legitimate. However, this has to be a fair critique, and that's not always done. That's not always the case. The UN has passed more resolutions against Israel than right. any other country in the 20 and 21st centuries, more than North Korea or the USSR or uh, or Iran or any other country. And so very often we see uh, what seems to be a nefarious lack of fairness in uh, in assessing the political reality of the state of Israel today, which has been under existential threat since even before its founding, since the the 1930s and with the the 1948 War of Independence, and so surrounded by Arab Muslim countries that are vowed to their destruction and annihilation. And so having lived in Israel, I also noticed how, even though the, the government is far from perfect, as I said, they do take really... Measures to avoid civilian casualties, and as the saying goes, if the Arabs would lay down their weapons, there would be peace tomorrow, or there there would be no more conflict tomorrow. But if Israel would lay down its weapons, there would be no more Israel tomorrow. <laughs> and so sadly, they have to uh, to have a, a policy of deterrence to protect yep. themselves, because sadly, in the history of the Jewish people, uh, they have their very existence has right.
1: been under threat more than once. Andre, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Excellent.